Welcome back to Women Make Science Fiction. This is the second um, podcast um, of Women Make Science Fiction across the media universe. I'm Amy Chambers. And I'm Lyle Skeens. And we're your hosts until they replace us with robots. Or men. (laughs) (laughs) So um, today we wanted to um, move on from our initial discussion of sort of um, introducing the projects and ourselves and, and rambling and probably my case um about different examples and where i sort of got my inspiration from so good luck you ramble that one. no i know <laughs> um so one of the discussions that we will come up over and over again is to do with this sort of idea of and the definition of science fiction so we talked briefly last time about um the fact that we used uh, women rather than female um, and I want to think more about why we've used SF rather than science fiction or the dreaded sci-fi which just grates with me as a term and I don't know why I think it's all the associations that go with it and the, the sort of like joined together of sci-fi fantasy as this sort of lump well it's also like it, it never ceases to amaze me that you walk into a bookstore and it's like you've got true crime, you've got mystery, you've got paranormal romance and regular romance, and then you just have a sci-fi fantasy section where it's just any random crazy lumping of everything from licensed Star Wars uh, novels to Neil Gaiman to... Margaret Atwood, who then, frankly, she would probably go in the literature section at this point, given that her science fiction is selected for A-levels, you know, and so it's, you know, it's just this giant lump of stuff. And especially if you're in now bookstores that are so small and where I am in North Wales, um, which (laughs) we're lucky to have a bookstore. it's, you know, you get two shelves of stuff and it's not even all science fiction. Boo. So, so that was my rant. Place. It's gone now, hasn't it? Anyway. Yep. Has that secondhand place, secondhand bookshop gone? It's still there. The I haven't, it hasn't been open like since I've passed. But then okay. again, that's the story of our lives for months now. Um. Okay. So... Why does the definition of science fiction matter? Um, I don't want to end up in a boundary dispute where we have really strict lines as to what is science fiction and what is not science fiction. Um, a lot of this discussion for me emerged um, as part of my general work on science fiction, but more recently um, with the screening of Welcome to the Terror Dome and the course that I did um, with Home Cinema and the fact that I produced um, a class and a discussion surrounding Welcome to the Terror Dome and one of the sort of discussions at the end of that um, was whether this was science fiction or not and whereas I was now more convinced of it in terms of um, my understanding of science fiction especially um, in terms of the connections between uh, Afrofuturism and uh, science fiction and speculative fiction my entire class were very, very clear about the fact that this was most definitely not science fiction because it didn't have any of the markers that they would recognise as science fiction. So it actually worked really well as a teachable moment uh, because we could talk about that sort of layers of meaning and what goes into this sort of definition of science fiction and part of then why 
it's become exclusionary to particular groups or perspectives because of this idea of hard and soft science fiction of what has to be included to make something um, science fiction. So welcome to the Terror Dome was Ngozi Onwara's debut feature, um, created in 1993 and released around about 1995, but again that depends on festivals as to what um, that date comes in. Um, and it is um, the first feature-length film directed by a black um, British woman. Um, and she is one of only a handful of black British women who um, have worked as directors um, still um, up to this point. So um, it is an extrapolation of um, Onwara's experiences um, as a Nigerian-born uh, woman growing up in Newcastle in the 80s and 1990s. Um, she talks about this idea that it was um, a sort of reflection of the anger and frustration that she felt concerning race relations um, in the UK and globally. And there's this connection between um, American narratives surrounding um, black rights and experiences, um, connecting through a lot of the music that's in this particular um, piece. The title, Welcome to the Terror Dome, comes from the 1990 public enemy um, track, Welcome to the Terror Dome. Um, it's a post-LA riots political allegory and it connects uh, mythical pasts and sort of um, images of slavery with an imagined um, future um, of a compound, if you like, a ghetto, um, which is referred to as the Terror Dome. So it's, it's purposely clashing together past and future, um, imagined and reality, um, in an attempt to provoke really uncomfortable questions about contemporary race relations, priest brutalities, and the limits of the progress that we've made um, as a society. So it doesn't have a lot of the perhaps expected markers of science fiction, so it doesn't have space rockets, it's not set in space, it's a near-future fiction. Um, I'm less concerned with defining science fiction in terms of particular tropes or particular character types or um, and thinking about it in terms of how it's visualised in terms of film but also in terms of how um, it works to think through ideas about our present, um, through futures, through technology, um, through um, different extrapolations and um, responses to um, science and society. So for me it's very much grounded in science but also um, this notion of um, extrapolating from the present to discuss potential futures which is where Welcome to the Terror Dome is interesting and um, it doesn't have the necessarily a um, futuristic element to it. It feels very now quite outdated, very 1990s. There's lots of lycra and cycling shorts. Um, <laughs> that was very 90s. Yes, it was very 90s. Um, but I think what I really connected with was this idea of it being Afrofuturism um, as um, an Afrofuturist example. So Yatasha Womack in her 2013 book explains Afrofuturism as combining elements of science fiction, historical fiction, speculative fiction, 
fantasy, Afrocentricity and magic realism with non-Western beliefs. It's a total revisioning of the past and a speculation about the future rife with, rife with cultural critiques. Um, so it's this merging of past, present and future that's so central to understanding Welcome to the Terror Dome, um, which is where I saw the connections with science fiction, even if it didn't necessarily have other clear markers of being science fiction, especially, as I said, with the other film that we um, screened as part of that unit was Barbarella. And so there's sort of um, yeah. contrast between Barbarella have, having the things made out of foil and laser guns and blasters and set in space and aliens and monsters and all of these things that are traditionally associated with sort of classic science fiction. Um, the fact that this piece can still be defined, Welcome to the Terror Dome, can still be defined as science fiction is to do with what it does, not necessarily what it looks like. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's interesting because uh, for me, uh, Welcome to the Terror Dome, I can see how they would question its being in the science fiction genre because it doesn't do a lot of those things that we're used to it, you know, going super into the future and and even like the use of technology um, where we have such a tradition of technology either saving us or uh, destroying us, right? You have, you, you have the pre-nuclear uh, age notion of technology as being wonderful and amazing and we're all going to be living in a better future. Uh, and then the post-nuclear age that, that, oh God, we're going to destroy ourselves one way or the other. And, and that's not what Welcome to the Terror Dome does. And it's interesting because, you know, I, I think we tweeted that it was interesting that, that she didn't foresee that element of technology and how it could be used and, and how it has been used uh, for the Black Lives Matter movement, which is to actually record these instances of, of police brutality and oppression and and inequality and be able to amplify those voices. Um, it was, you know, it was very much anthropomorphized, uh, that notion of, of savior in the, the figure of the, the one mother figure who uh you know spoilers obs uh goes on a rampage and every bullet she fires is magic it's the anti-stormtrooper bullet it you know every bullet hits its target um and and so for me that that ends up in a magical realism sort of state as opposed to science fiction, because Black Lives Matter, it's, you know, it is this oppressed people saving itself and bettering itself um, and and making a better world for itself, which is what Welcome to the Terror Dome is about. Um, and and yet it's not about the technology there. It's not about the science. It's not about any of that. It's about the people. It's about the humanity of being able to step forward and say, okay, I am stepping out of this ghetto, stepping out of this dome and saying, uh, we don't deserve this. Uh, and sort of throwing off, literally in the movie, throwing off shackles. Um, and, and so that to me, like the elements of science fiction in it were almost the visual references 
like like the we noted that there are definitely some Blade Runner references there, uh, Running Man, that sort of thing. Um, it, it felt like the secret cinema production of Blade Runner that we actually went to uh, in terms yeah. of the ghetto and the, the space. And it's very claustrophobic and, and pieced together and feeling like being fenced. Yeah, as well, like a sort of like industrial shantytown. Yeah. And um but for me, the actual story itself, I mean, you could have very easily said this is Chicago, this is L.A., and definitely lots of the costuming referenced L.A. I think we kind of had the discussion of, you know, do, do, do rags appear in London or is that an L.A. thing? And then the colors associated with gangs and what, you know, so we were picking up on different cues as to different metropolises, different cities uh, where, you know, these these communities are. And so she's she's visually highlighting that that they're everywhere in the Western world. Um, and so for me, like it it felt a lot more into that magical realism realm, especially with the references to uh, the previous generations of of slaves that these people became and then returned to in the sort of framing narrative of it. So. My question for you is, and 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 then I'll answer it, is what do you, what is your definition of science fiction? Like, how do you say this is science fiction, this isn't? It is a really difficult question because I do think there's sort of a level of feeling it and knowing that it's science fiction. Um, so sometimes it's really... Um, obvious so I did my PhD research on the 1968 film Planet of the Apes and that as a science fiction has the visual trappings of science fiction in terms of the way that's introduced um, with the sort of uh, spaceship and um, sort of imagined technologies that would allow us to travel that far into space and then having that layer of um, critical cultural critique um so that sort of um and I think again why I've convinced myself that Welcome to the Terror Dome comes under science fiction is that sort of um, extrapolation of the present into a imagined space that allows for a discussion of what's happening in the present time um, I would tend to argue that science fiction is more of a reflection of the time it's made in and then the time it purports to um, represent. So whether you're going into past, present, future, alternative realities, it's really grounded in um, the present moment, in our um, contemporary um, historical moment. Um, so from my, if I put on my science communication and history of science hat, um, it's the science that I'm interested in and um, that connection to technologies and um, science in terms of how uh, they are considered, how they are um, used as not only a discussion of that technology, but again, going back to the ethical consideration. It's that connection, uh, not necessarily um, producing an accurate vision of a future, an accurate um, image of how we might get to the stars, how we might... Um, change definitions and ideas of humanity but really um about the ethical discussion that goes along 
um, side that. So um, the film that we watched this week, uh, which is a French film called Evolution, um, directed by Lucille Haji Halilovic from, I want to say 2014, but now I can't remember because I'm really bad at I think it's 2015. You are correct, uh, from 2015. Um, and again, this sort of um, discussion around science fiction p- cropped up again when I came to review that particular um, film, that it had more of the sort of like visual trappings and expected narrative elements to it in terms of medical experimentation, um, in terms of um, ideas about the future of reproduction, the future of motherhood, the future of um, the human race in terms of its connection to... Uh, the water and so there's narratives around uh, emerging from the sea and the return to the sea is sort of a big um, theme within that particular film but it doesn't necessarily neatly fit uh, within science fiction so I've often tended to define science fiction through the ideas of it being a visual genre and as I've gone into this and we've had examples um like evolution, like Welcome to the Terror Dome, I'm always have I'm constantly having to rethink my definition of science fiction, <laughs> um, and that's why I think it's a really horrible <laughs> uh, question for a science fiction scholar. But also, uh, and it's something that every book about science fiction will have this discussion at the beginning of how do we define science fiction. Um, I, I tend to teach it that it is something that is really difficult to pin down because it's something that's so changeable and so responsive to what's happening um, at the time. So my favourite current, my current favourite uh, definition um, was the one that I put, uh, I, I used as sort of like a jumping off point for the review of Evolution, um, which was looking at Cicero uh, René's position on science fiction, which to think about it as a a mode of thought, uh, a kind of awareness, thinking about what science fiction does to its audience, so as an interactive response, um, rather than what it shows us. And although science fiction in film and television is is a very much a visual medium, when it doesn't have a neat narrative, as evolution does not, the science fiction is not connected then to the narrative but rather to the way that the audience responds to it so the feelings and the experience of that particular um film and again that's that connection back to uh welcome to the terror dome in terms of that ability to make you think through your current situation but also how that might um change or not change as often is the case um over the following years that was really 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 long ramble because I think because I talk and I'm really sorry. <laughs> I'm gonna match that long ramble actually because I think that you know you and I when we talk we we kind of feel like we're talking from two different directions and like we have different definitions of things uh, because we look at different types of media uh, but actually I think they're not that different we just maybe are getting them from different sources and thinking about them thinking about them from different concepts. Uh, obviously, so coming from more a literary, more more of a literary writing bent, uh, you know, it's not so much a visual medium for me. Um, and I, I also teach a, a module in genre fiction. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's often described and, and I 
talked about in the first episode that in creative writing and and literature in the academy and universities that sort of thing it's very much frowned upon to do genre writing uh you know despite the fact that you know genres already imposed on what we do because of market forces yada yada uh so you know and they like to describe science fiction fantasy uh that sort of thing as escapist it's not you know it's just for fun and um you know and we definitely know that's not true some of our most profound work comes in the form of uh science fiction whether it's thomas more's utopia uh ursula le guin's left hand of darkness um george orwell's 1984 we have lots of different visions of our society through uh these science fiction lenses and strangely um literature as a field has wholly embraced magical realism like there's no logic whatsoever behind their uh sort of condemnation of some genres and and uplifting of others uh but uh so i when i teach it to my students and how i've come to think about science fiction uh, i draw a lot from it's it's actually really interesting because the the three theorists that i draw a lot on is svetan sodorov who's russian and has a very like orderly formalistic approach uh as the russians do to literature uh rosemary jackson who talks about and and interestingly enough both of them talk more about fantasy but somehow it helps to define science fiction uh and uh richard kearney who talks about strangers gods and monsters uh so todorov defines the fantastic now this is somewhat different from fantasy because it's it it encompasses basically fiction the fantastic um and I can sit there sometimes and, and I have these conversations with, with my husband where, where he's like, oh, that's not right. That's not real science or no, that, you know, basically he has, he has a very hard time with the fact that all the time in action movies, people are getting massive concussions and then getting up and they're fine. And he's like, no, you need to go to the hospital. You know, he, he likes rules. <laughs> um, and, and so I'm like, but it's TV land. In TV land, you can take a hit and keep going. You don't have concussions in TV land. Okay. Um, and so that's an element of fantasy. The element of fantasy that you can punch one punch and the guy is knocked out. You know, that sort of thing. You can punch somebody through a driver's, you know, despite all of the, you know, through the driver window and they're, they're knocked out. I'm like, no, I don't care how cool Indiana Jones is. He's not reaching through a, a semi-truck window and knocking the guy out in one hit. Um, so there's an element of fantasy there. So on a certain level, everything is fantasy. And Todorov um, identifies this point of hesitation. And for him, it's all about that hesitation. And it's either on the character's part or on the audience's part. So you have the uncanny, which is this sort of... Um, all these strange things are happening. They're not explainable. They're, they could be magic. They could be advanced science. Uh, but... In the end, it turns out it's just because the character was insane and and they're hallucinating or what have you. So it goes, okay, it's the Dana Scully of, of genres. It's, yes, all of this is crazy, but there's a rational explanation for it. And then on the other hand, he says there's the, the Marvelous, uh, which is, nope, it's magic. 
it's the Fox Mulder of genres. Uh, it's aliens. It's magic. It's whatever crazy thing that you think it is initially. That's totally what it is, regardless of whether or not we can explain it. And there's a continuum there uh, from, you know, it's totally explainable. This person was just hallucinating or uh, it's it's utterly magic. It's just tra-la-la-la-la, fairy dust sort of thing. Um, and in there is the scientific marvelous uh, which is is where he finds science fiction and, and where I see science fiction in his definition, which is it's advanced science. It's definitely science that we can't science yet. Um, you know, it's Asgardian science. <laughs> it's, um, you know, it's light, you know, the ability to travel faster than the speed of light, the ability to time travel. Those are definitely fantasy abilities. Like, we're not sure we're ever going to be able like that it is even possible theoretically um but we can say things about them we can you know we can use that element of the marvelous of a fantasy to say things about culture and humans and that sort of thing so that's the sort of it's a it's a mode of fantasy as all fiction is a mode of fantasy and where i roll rosemary jackson in there is she talks about fantasy she was specifically looking at like gothic literature, so Frankenstein, Dracula, this sort of thing. Um, but as as a, a mode of subversion, so it's a way to get across and to experience things that are taboo, things that we find difficult to talk about. So when we create Star Trek and we put Uhura on the bridge and she's an officer and she's an equal with Kirk, even if she doesn't get the same uniform, even if freaking women never, thanks Rick Berman, never get appropriate uniforms until now. Um, they did it to Deanna Troy on purpose. I swear to God. Um, they, you know, they're still equals, you know, the fact that you have what is uh, rather uh, apocryphally referred to as the first interracial kiss on TV. It's not really the first interracial kiss on TV um, between Kirk and Uhura. Um, that because it's in this fantasy genre of science fiction, it's more acceptable than if it happened, you know, if, if we showed it on the news or if we showed it in a drama uh, because it's removed from us. It's something we can we can play with more. So she looked at like Dracula as this uh, in a particularly gothic literature as an expression of sexual desire. Uh, the fact that we can use these these monsters to express our, our desire to um, give of ourselves to a completely sensual creature. Um, and you can extrapolate that to other forms of fantasy. So I think there's where we get into that some of that, you know, it is what it does, what it does for us as, as readers, as audiences, as writers. Um, and then Kearney brings in Strangers, Gods, and Mo Monsters as the other. Um, our way to explain the other, that which is unfamiliar to us, that which we don't connect to personally yet. Um, so we see a lot of these texts that that look at otherness. And I think Welcome to the Terror Dome comes in here a bit because in Western, you know, historically Anglo civilizations, um, you know, so we're talking the United States, Canada, Australia, uh, Britain, and yes, European, because the French did it too. The Dutch were not great imperialists, this sort of thing, um, is that 
all people of African descent and Africans were treated absolutely as the other in that they were enslaved and kept enslaved. And, and it was, you know, a way of doing that. And so um, in Welcome to the Terror Dome, the monsters then are the enslavers. And we definitely see this in the opening scenes um, where the white slavers are just grotesque, right? They're disgusting. They're, I mean, they're, like Nazi level horrible human beings. Like we we count Nazis as like the pinnacle of human evil, but these were pretty bad. Like slavers were real bad, y'all. It's just they're a little farther away from us. Um sometimes. There's still modern slavery, but we're not gonna get into that. But so that's you know, that's sort of like this tri-cornered approach to science fiction for me. Um, sure, uh, when you literally pull in gods and monsters, you know, you talk about Neil Gaiman's American Gods or something like that, and we start getting into to myth. Yeah, I'm going to definitely label that fantasy. Um, but I still think it's doing that, doing what you said, which is making us question things, making us think about our world and sometimes where we've come from. So, you know, you framed it as this vision of, of future, you know, the visions of the future so that we can see how we are now. And a lot of times it's also revisionist. Um, it's a lens into the past as well, because we do retell stories so often. I mean, how many times have we told the story of Prometheus over and over and over and over and over and over, and over uh, you know, and Pygmalion, um, you know, the because there's something about them and it and it continues. Uh, so for me, it's the that sort of three cornered approach to science fiction, which doesn't give a nice, clean definition of science fiction, that's for sure. But that's why you can teach an entire module on it, because we can just keep assigning text and going, okay, how does this work in our, you know, in our framework of science fiction and what it does? Does this, you know, and then as writers, we can start to go, okay, it's not just about throwing aliens in there or space travel uh, or time travel or it's dystopia or whatever it is. It's about going, what if? And for me, the what if question and how does this reflect back on us is central to science fiction. Yeah, I think the futures question is really interesting as well. Is, is, is it about the future? Is it about looking forward? Um, I've obviously done, obviously, but I've done um, work on this idea of the imagined future and thinking about futures past and this sort of idea of how our notion and idea of the future changes and how fluid the setting of science fiction can be. And I think a lot of the examples that we're looking at, uh, there's quite a range of different periods, some contemporary set, some near future um, that do quite different things with science fiction. Um, some that are very focused on um, a particular uh, moment or a particular scientific um, development. So Vanishing Waves, um, which is the, the first Lithuanian uh, science fiction film from 2012, the first feature length one directed by a woman, um, has a focus on um, neurobiology and um, advances in neuroscience and the sort of like unpicking the science um, 
but is it necessarily about the future where is it set how does it exist as a narrative and this sort of like trying to not think of science fiction or not to think of genre as a box but rather as a as a way of thinking yeah. about something. That's why I like this mode idea that it's it's this idea of of thinking, a mode of subversion for Jackson, a way of explaining the other, um, whilst also creating a sense of a reality effect, a sense of there being a cohesive reality that these stories take place in. So it's not necessarily that they need to be futuristic or that they need to have a perfect explanation of a police particular piece of technology but rather what that space allows for yeah and i think like we talked we've talked a bit about um you know science fiction versus speculative fiction um and i think that speculative fiction quite often like it's this new ish term for science fiction for genre fiction for texts that ask what if what if this happened you know what if we had a major climate catastrophe that totally broke down the united states and now we pit 13 you know separate states against one another in the hunger games um what if uh we put all of the black population in a dome like literally a ter- like the original song is like no we already live here but what if we actually put those communities in an actual terror dome um what if we took that literally uh you know um a handmaid's tale what if some of the religious uh fundamentalists uh, stuff uh, they actually got to power and could do what they wanted to do and and so you know we talked about margaret atwood defining her approach she doesn't like to be defined as science fiction uh she wants to be called speculative fiction because of that and of course i think there's some political maneuvering there because she did come up in the academy as it were in creative writing programs and she didn't complete her PhD, but she did PhD work. And um, and so she is sort of imbued with that academic uh, perspective on science fiction, that it's escapist, that it's trash, that it's low quality. And I think she wanted to separate herself from that. And so it was really embraced the speculative fiction label. Um, so I feel like it's a, it's a sexy label for what science fiction has always been capable of and has always tried to do from from Mary Shelley onward, which is to ask what if and to show us stuff about our lives, um, which is definitely what Shelley did with Frankenstein. Um, and and what I think Welcome to the Terror Dome does. Uh, I, don't know about, I don't know about Tank Girl. <laughs> how, do, how do you... I mean, it, it's interesting to me because we know that Tank Girl isn't doesn't didn't fulfill its creator's vision because of interference. Um, but for you, what are the elements that that put Tank Girl into this category? Because it definitely has stuff that is really outside the the realms of hard sci-fi. <laughs> yeah, I think. I think it'll be interesting to to put this in with the discussion of of real genius, the Martha um, Coolidge 
film that we're looking at this week, um, in terms of thinking about where those lines of seriousness is, seriousness and uh, reality actually sit when it comes to science fiction. Um, there's the future setting, there's this sort of um, discussion around resources, um, which give it that sort of contemporary climate fiction uh, narrative. So it's grounded in those particular discussions around who has control of natural resources, who is allowed to be, um, and how they're used. Um, uh, that sort of parallel to Mad Max Fury Road was really interesting for me, that idea of at the core of that it being a discussion of uh, resources packaged within an action movie. Um, and so there's the sort of um, ethical considerations, the cultural critique that sits alongside that much more comic booky, um, beyond the, the bounds of reality, because there is that sort of... Um, well, as you were talking about, this sort of idea of... Um, thinking through the fantasy elements in terms of having someone knocked out with a single punch or having uh, dog soldiers, soldiers literally who are part dog or part kangaroo, part kangaroo. or <laughs> whatever animal they've sort of um, hybridised with. But it's not necessarily that that particular element is realistic, but rather that it points to discussions around things like um, animal experimentation, experimentation in terms of um, what it is to be human, where that line um, is, and the fact that in this particular future you have um, Booger? Is that the name of the um, boyfriend character? Unfortunately, the... I think so. Booga, yeah, which in which in my accent sounds fine. In your accent, sounds like something you've mined from your nose. Yes, um, unfortunately, but I think the fact that you have this character who is a hybrid Doctor Moreau style sort of experimentation to try and improve humanity to make them a better military force or fighter, um, but for Tank Girl. Uh, she is completely unconcerned with that. It doesn't even flicker on her consciousness. So in terms of like the future world building, which I found really interesting, is the fact that as a character, she is very unique in terms of the way she responds to all of these things. Everything is playful. Everything is fun. Nothing is too much for that particular character. And I think in terms of the science fictional elements, that presentation of character and the world building and the fact that particular plot points <laughs> in inverted commas because the plot's a bit um but sort of um the sort of like key things that a lot of the film is hung upon are based within um that science fiction world and those discussions around ethics of science and technology, ethics surrounding uh, resource management. And for a film that is so outrageously chaotic and playful and messy, the fact that at the core, those are the big sort of 
issues that I came away with and, and I found really interesting. I think about, you know, yes, there's these ridiculous ice tea playing a uh, animal, human, whatever, hybrid. Um, but within that story world, that doesn't make him other in the... He's not alien or other. He's not frightening because of that. I, I, I just sort of... I, I find a lot of those sort of discussions that are going through the film really interesting. Yeah, and I think that that central question of how do we tackle problems in our world, in our society globally, and the commentary on government control, you know, the few, basically oligarchy type control of of our key resources, of which basically water is life. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, that's definitely something we're going to talk about in a future episode because water comes into a lot of these. Um, but that to me was, was interesting because we see so many really like parallel images, but in a completely different tone in Mad Max, in Furiosa. Um, you know, we definitely saw Furiosa in Tank Girl, but from, you know, a completely different tone, completely different tonal shift, but same thing, really. Let's liberate the women and, you know, uh, from, and let's liberate the water from these few men who are in control of it and, and keeping, uh, you know, basically keeping women as, as a, an oppressed group. Um, and so for me, that was, was really interesting because, because we do address, you know, there is a, a scene in which, you know, they don't have water, but they still have strip clubs. We can't go without strip clubs. <laughs> but I loved uh, her take on that, um, which was to take back the power. Um, we can use this, basically, this weakness of men to manipulate them, to, to get our own means, to, to do what we want. Um, so even though we're within this oppressive uh, structure, we can play with it. And the same thing with the, you know, Naomi Watts and Lori Petty exchanging that kiss. It was, you know, a distraction measure. And, and you know, um, most of her distraction tactics are sexual in nature. And it's basically, it, it, in the hands of a woman, it doesn't feel exploitative. It feels powerful. It's basically saying, you pathetic wretch. The fact that this works on you, it you know, just is is pathetic. Um, and so, you know, and to me, that's that's framing, that's costuming, that's the attitude of the actress, that's all of these things that, you know, it depends where the camera pans, whether you know, whether it feels yes. exploitative or not. I love that. I think I made it into a GIF on the first um, post I did on this particular project where you have that um, well, toes to tits mm -hmm. uh, camera movement where it pans at the body, um, which is used a lot in Suicide Squad with Harley Quinn. Uh, I'm not going to go into a Harley Quinn moment, but it, you do get this sort of like pan up the body, but it goes past her boobs to her face and she breaks the fourth wall. She, she makes eye contact with the camera she takes that sort of traditional camera movement and turns it into a sort of like as if she was controlling it and I think that there's a lot of interest interesting stuff that goes there and um, so I think we can 
move that into then thinking through why and where we define a science fiction as being woman made because obviously um, Rachel Talele, um the um, prolific television uh, genre television um, director um, who's been involved in projects like Sherlock, um, Haven, uh, the Arrowverse TV series, um, Doctor Who. Uh, she, as a I love that director, my favorite of all of those is Haven. <laughs> wanted to be wanted to make this first sort of like uh, woman directed action flick. This idea she was going to be able to like smash through the glass ceiling with this particular movie, and then actually the reality of that in terms of working within a studio system that was so stacked against her and against a film like this, because it's not only the fact that it's a woman director, it's also the fact that it is a woman-focused narrative um, as well. Um, But the screenplay um, is written by Teddy um, Serafian, and apologies, I've mispronounced that. Um, And then the comic strip, um, from um, British comic artists Alan Martin and Jamie Hewlett has, again, it is a riot girl narrative. It's it's a really formative text for lots of feminists, for lots of, of women from Generation X and, and early millennials in terms of that what a woman can be and do, but it's still one that is created and written um, by men. And then you get that intersection, that direction by a woman director, that powerful... Um, lead woman character that collaboration on set um, and in that particular space but then the external factors that come into that as well I don't think it's necessarily a great script to start off with so I don't think Talele is working with a nicely paced and structured script and then I can't imagine what it was like then to have to deal with people going no you can't do that no you can't have that no she can't say that no women don't talk like that women don't do that and it's that sort of well it's like the the number of things where um men tell us what we like or what we don't like to me is just insane um you know where I was having a discussion last night that at at some point um studios questioned whether uh, female audiences would find Benedict Cumberbatch or uh, Tom Hiddleston as Loki attractive. And I'm like, wow, no wonder we still have problems between men and women if you think we weren't going to find those two attractive. Um, but, you know, it's and we see the the dis- distinct difference. And I think it's it's the reason that the discourse around Wonder Woman comes up so much is because we get to see the exact same character, the exact same actor uh, treat it and how they are treated differently by women directors versus men directors. You know, same thing a little bit with Captain Marvel, in that when um, when we see her, uh, you know, framed by a woman director, and who directed? Who was which one? Uh, Wonder Woman. Uh, Wonder Woman's Patty Jenkins. Patty Jenkins. Yep. So when Patty Jenkins frames her and costumes them, it's like okay, let's costume the Amazons like they would want to be cost. Like, this is... And it's a woman costume designer yeah, as well. Yeah, how we would actually... But it's a woman costume designer for Suicide Squad for... Um, yeah, but not for... Justice League. Yeah. Um, but it's the way the director... Exactly, the way the director wants things. And how much control they yep. have over those things. And, and, you know, whether the camera actually, you know, 
women so often are introduced by that, as you say, toes to tit camera pan, um, you know, and, and so much to the point where you get um, like the Hawkeye project for comics, which redraws uh, male, which it originally started with the Hawkeye character, but redraws male comic book characters in poses that the female characters typically get. So these absolutely insane unrealistic poses that are just all boobs all butt all legs all sex appeal um but put them on men and all of a sudden you're like oh yeah that's a little bit ridiculous that looks weird. um so you can definitely see the just the difference that that one area makes where you know it can be the exact same scene the exact same script but in one way, you know, Patty Jenkins filming Wonder Woman uh, marching across no man's land makes you cry versus, you know, every time versus, you know, the fact that someone else is just doing it. Oh, can you know, let's put Deanna Troy in something that shows all her cleavage. So, yeah, so that's and that's an interesting question, because, you know, when we talk about literature it's very easy to point to a novel with an author's name on it and say that was written by a woman um well most of the time I mean, we talked about james tipperty jr and and how frequently you know um you know at that at the time she was writing uh it, it wouldn't have helped her to be a woman and in a lot of science fiction um apart from young adults young adult is a lot more welcoming of women writers and and that's a but that's also why young adult doesn't get a lot of recognition that it should. Uh, but uh, if you look at science fiction, a lot of them tend to use their initials. So like N.K. Jameson, she doesn't go by N.K. Her first name's Nora, but she doesn't put on her books because um, there's a, that stigma there of, you know, women can't write science fiction. You know, James Tripp Jr., she was great. She wrote like a man. Um, and... But when it comes to collaborative stuff like games or films, you know, at what point is it, can we say this was created by a woman, you know, or does, or a woman worked on it. And your point there about the costume designers is right, is yes, you can have a woman, the same costume designer, but if the director won't let a costume on set, there's only so much you can do and so much you can influence. Yeah, they get the. They, in theory, they get the final word on on whether that comes uh, to be part of their film, and I don't feel that Talele necessarily got all of those decisions. I think there is definitely um, control once it's on set, but the sort of development process to get it to that point, I, I'm really interested in, and I hope that I'll be able to interview her as part of this project and, and think through that that sort of um, narrative because she's very vocal about her issues with. Um, the production of Tank Girl, that she loved it as, as sort of like her favourite um, directing job. And then it, it sort of slowly unravelled um, as it became clear she wasn't going to get to direct the film that she wanted to because she, she did, she liked the script in its original form, but we never, don't, I don't know what that looks like in terms of comparison to the actual filmed final I'd love to know. Um, like I'd love to be able to compare the different experiences of women directors for major studios versus male directors because we definitely know that like obviously Blade Runner is our go-to example of uh, a film that the you know the studio made them come back and put the voiceover in for the theatrical release um 
And that was, oh, audiences won't understand it, blah, blah, blah. But then, of course, it's Ridley Scott. And so however many, 10 years later, he gets to go, you know what? That that original direction, that that sucked from the studio. We all hated it. So here's my ultimate director's cut. Um, and he got to revise his text, as it were. And we all sort of, as a field, go, great. We're going to go with Ridley Scott's vision because... A, it doesn't suck, um, and and B, it, it it's better. Um, and wait, you know, where is Talele's, uh director's cut of Tank Girl? Um, you know, we're not gonna. It's unlikely we're gonna get to see that. Um, so we know that major studios do come in and and definitely wield their, uh, you know, the suits come in and go, meh, 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 you know, uh, some focus group audience didn't understand this, and and so you have to completely redo the the whole thing. But I would be interested to see the difference in experiences um, depending on who the director is. Because um, we've got a mix uh, in in the film, especially the film uh, list, especially you've got a mix of um, written and directed by, written, produced, and directed by women versus. So Toledo is one of the examples where it's a. Um, written by and directed by Talele. She is a director, not necessarily someone who, who works, has that process, goes through the entire process, and why should she? Um, whereas looking at um, Evolution, that was um, written and directed by, um, by Lucille. Haji Halilovic. That's different in the sense that she has the writer credit and also the director credit and the producer credit. But it's a film that then took 10 years to come to fruition. She makes Innocence in 2004. It's a huge hit on the, the festival circuit. It's very, very well critically received. Um, it's got big stars in it like um, Marion Cotillard. I think that's how I pronounce her surname because I'm now really unsure. <laughs> and so you've got... Um, she produces her next film, which is not a massive deviation from Innocence, but because it's this definition of science fiction that fits around feeling and experience and generating a set and generating ideas within your audience and that being the intention, it took her a long time to get the funding together to get that put um, together. So yes, she has control over the creative process in, um, and has a lot more control in terms of what goes into that particular film in order for her to keep that vision she had to work on it for years and years and years to build up that funding she doesn't get like the the success of innocence does not instantly mean that there is funding and support for a equally strange weird thoughtful film so in film now my question is is if you know, we've we've talked a little bit about oh Mary Wollstonecraft when when she wanted to write, they're like oh no, this is a woman, how dare you write anything? When Mary Shelley writes Frankenstein, oh it's disgusting that a woman wrote this. You know how base and immoral must she be? Um, and so we definitely get backlash against just just the fact that they're women in that form, and we've absolutely seen it in games. I mean the treatment that women game developers get. Um, is just absolutely insane um, and undeserved. Uh, 
do we see the same sort of thing? Do we see the same sort of at just base attitude reaction to women, women filmmakers? Or is it mostly more of this subtle, no funding, no follow on film, no studio recognition. You're not the auteur, which I hate that word. Cause it's so, yeah, the, I mean, known. I was going to mention the auteur, the, the theory, the idea around the auteur is this director as um, the controller of the film, that the film is a reflection of their uh, vision of their story of their world that they're creating on screen. And and I have a lot of issue with the auteur theory because it is something that is developed and structured around male-dominated filmmaking. This idea of having a director who can make 10 films, can make two films, five films, any multiple of films, um, and then be able to have this oeuvre that can be dissected as a, a neat narrative. If you're getting people who, women who make films that are then become their one film. So for Rachel Talele, um, Tank Girl is her last, uh, currently her last feature film. Um, and yes, she has an extensive and prolific and amazing career in television, but that film doesn't do well. She doesn't get to direct, direct another film so her sort of the idea of the auteur is very much around the privilege of being able to fail the privilege of being able to have multiple bites of the apple for one of a better frame it, it, it's women are allowed to fail in the industry and if they do it's not just their failure it blows back on other women it's it's because you're a woman director we don't work with women because they are difficult to work with and we've all heard those narratives and wherever we work sort of for me I remember being told you don't want to have a woman external examiner for your viva because uh, they will be harder on you they will be more awkward they will uh, have a point to prove this sort of like constant continued sort of systemic idea that just systemic misogyny yes just outright misogyny yes that women i mean and yet should Zach be treated Snyder differently because making film after that film. System. yeah you can make a, a string of failures and and sort of be okay if you're a man one other woman failed at a genre film and that means that no, that other, no women other women are getting that it. patty jenkins yeah. who dropped out of thor 2 um yeah. because she wasn't happy with the script or and various other reasons because she knew if, if that film failed it would be marked as a failure for women of women yep <laughs> not, not just, just her. that one film or that particular script um it, it's really yeah difficult i think I patsy mean, jenkins has made a big difference though with wonder woman but that's taken years of getting to that point where she has that control and that yeah and I think that, you know, it's a, it's a shame. So there's, it's a shame that that happens because we're missing out on a lot of amazing work. Um, you know, as you and I have talked about, once you start to, to purposefully focus your attention on work by women, on work by people of color on work from different cultures, you start to see some truly amazing stuff. And it's really hard 
to go back to the Michael Bay's and Zack Snyder and get any form of enjoyment out of it. It's really hard to go back to even a humdrum TV show, even if it's, you know, I try to, to, to look at stuff that at least has a woman in the lead role, but so often they're treated like little girls, they're fetishized, they're infantilized, and you realize that you've gotten used to these people being treated as equals and important and valuable with voices and you can't go back to what was, you know, it's, it's, um, but from being marginalized, we have seen, uh, these women and people of color and LGBTQ and disabled people, uh, make amazing work. I mean, if you were being truly cynical, you could go, would they make such amazing work if they weren't marginalized and needed to, you know, strike out? And I, my argument is, well, yes, because men aren't marginalized and they still make pretty good work. I mean, they make a lot of really bad work that we also have to see. Um, but it, you look at things like anaanthropy and queers in love at the end of the world. And anaanthropy emerges as an independent game developer uh, because completely marginalized uh, in terms of gender, gender identity, in terms of the types of stories she wants to tell in her games, um, and, and picks up this indie platform called Twine and starts to do some interesting things with it. And um, what's interesting about that is that... Uh, she begins to tell stories and she becomes known for those beautiful, beautiful stories that she can tell in, in that platform. Um, and then the platform becomes known for that type of story, for the capability to tell a story that we couldn't tell anywhere else because AAA games won't let us in. The major studio system won't let us in. So we make indie games, we make indie films, we self-publish, you know, Becky Chambers starts off, you know, from this, you know, let me just get my stuff out there. Um, and it, you, you launch this whole new realm of things. And I think the the tragedy there is that it can be difficult to find unless you're looking for it. Um, and that's, that's the bad part, is that would I have watched Evolution without this project? Would I have watched Welcome to the Terror Dome? Probably not, because <sighs> there's a lot out there. Um, and so it, it's one of those things where how do we start to seek out these texts? How do we amplify these texts so that, you know, the number of people who've said, oh, you know, the number of times I've tried to find something science fiction on Netflix or streaming service or something like that, and all I get now, don't get me wrong, I love them, but all I get now are, are the Avengers movies. <laughs> because now that defines science fiction film. And all you get are you know, the comic book movies. Now that is apparently what science fiction is at this point. Um, and you can't find anything but these big franchises, you, you know, you can't find anything but the, you know, and, and NK Jameson whose broken earth trilogy won the Hugo three years in a row. No mm. one has ever done that three years in a row, three subsequent novels, won the Hugo has never hit the bestseller list has never topped it. Um, and yet 
and it's it's just it's it's just it blows my my mind. Anna Anthropy, whose work, it, you know, she turned Twine into a platform that now game developers use it for their portfolios. Um, Charlie Brooker used Twine to create uh, the Black Mirror interactive episode Bandersnatch. Didn't acknowledge it. <laughs> um, and then decided that Netflix needed to create its own proprietary twine so that, you know, they wouldn't have to give Chris Klimas anything. Um, but to, to just make a platform just by the fact that you use it and espouse it because your art is so good and then not actually to have mainstream recognition is something that would happen to women, something that would happen to people of color, something that would happen to LGBTQ, and God forbid you be all of those things, mm. um, that is just unreal. Um, and it's just a fate of, you know, a chromosome or two, you know, d dividing or not dividing or getting into a gamete, not getting into a gamete. And it's... It makes me very sad and very angry. I don't know where I'm going. So it's the different, we have these different layers in science fiction in terms of thinking about who gets to put their sort of name on it, if you like, and who gets to stamp that as their creative um, piece. So with, with film, there's the director, and although that is one part of the process because we've got the sort of like, the theories surrounding it, things like auteur, this idea of the director as this sort of um, be all and end all of filmmaking, um, identifying things that we can say are women made um, is a little easier because we can do it by then. But then when do you start pulling it down from there? What happens when you start looking at the writing? What happens when you start looking at who's involved in the production? Um, should I also be looking at science fiction films that have got women writers? Um, but male directors, where is that um, line? Should we be looking at um, science fiction games that have got female protagonists? Where is that line in terms of something that makes it a woman-led or woman-made um, project? And it, it changes according to the platform very much. Um, and I think our definitions of science fiction shift with the platform as well. Um, a television series in terms of the volume of people that are involved in that particular um, product, for want of a better phrase. You have writing teams, you have um, development, you have directors who do individual episodes. Um, are we looking at the creators? So the current list that we have of um, women-made science fiction television specifically is uh, writers, directors, and um showrunners all the examples have got women showrunners a very niche group to broaden should we be broadening it out in order to incorporate other women's voices or should we be sticking to um those rules in terms of what makes it woman made and it's really hard once you start talking about games because they don't have the same credits structure that film does which is you know actually governed by a guild uh it's games are it could just have be stamped with the the development company. The development company's name might just be, in actuality, it's two people who made the game, but all you get is that name. Um, or it could be a, a huge studio in which you have many, many cogs and many wheels 
Uh, and and so you don't I mean, when you look, when you try to find games uh, created by women, you're going to get lists where the woman was the artist. The woman was the writer. The woman was the director. And it's it's not as easy in games to, to define these things. Uh, it's a lot easier in digital fiction and independent games. So you can point to Anna Anthropy as the absolute creator of Queers in Love at the End of the World. You can point to Porpentine. Uh, you can point to a, a single author. It's it's a little bit more like books in that way. And even, you know, the smaller indie stuff like Gone Home, Dear Esther, where you know it's a small studio and you know exactly who made what. It's a lot easier. But when it's these big games, man, they they don't do often cre- sometimes the credits the massive credits like uh you see in films where you you know who delivered the sandwiches last tuesday um so it's it's very difficult um and you know i think that that's an interesting question is at what point are you able to influence the text uh and and that varies a lot. It, it's going to vary depending on who your director is. You could have a totalitarian director and, you know, like like we know Ridley Scott was. Um, or you could have more of a democratic director who, you know, likes, you know, does the, the good boss thing of hiring people who are smarter than they are and taking their opinion. So taking the, the costume director's opinion, taking this and, and turning it into a good thing. It's a collaborative process yeah. rather than uh, this is then, my um, vision and you will enact mm-hmm. it for me. Right. And, but I, I think and, this is a discussion we will have a lot in terms of thinking about where we see the hand of the women that we are associating with these particular texts. So I'm intrigued. So we're, we've done an independent um, black women director feature. We've done a um, French indie, but the French system is very different in terms of how it supports women directors. Um, we have done a studio studio, um, film with Tank Girl um, and with this um, week we're looking at Real Genius from Martha Coolidge from 1985 and it's very much a 1980s science fiction comedy um, but how much is it defined by its star versus its director Um, it's things like Big by Penny Marshall um, as a film, it's a tank. Top, it's a Tom Hanks movie. Does yeah, any Marshall's the script then is studied? Like for writing, the script is studied as one of the key, you know, really great film scripts. Nobody ever talks about Penny Marshall. Yeah, and and so I I, I found it really interesting. Almost like these surprise women. Surprise! It's directed by a woman. Uh, like Deep Impact or Aeon Flux or sort of these big studio. Um, pieces that fit as part of franchises or fit as part of a sort of big event film and then they're directed by women so I'm, I'm interested to see how that will shift according to where the name is attached and how that film is phrased and advertised and and all of those things as well yep but i think that might be more conversation for another day because we've probably um bored everyone silly now with various rants and rumblings um yeah i think that about wraps it up um so thank you very much for joining us until next time where we hopefully will not have been replaced by robots or men 